You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the spiritual birthing movement. What are the organizations and businesses that make up this movement? And what are they offering pregnant people that they aren't finding in traditional medical settings or traditional religious communities? How are the people and companies in this movement infusing pregnancy, birth, and parenting with a sense of the sacred? And what does all of this reveal about social inequalities among pregnant people across the United States? everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Anne Duncan. She is the author of the book, Sacred Pregnancy, Birth, Motherhood, and the Quest for Spiritual Community. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming September issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Anne. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me today. Of course. So I'd like to start our conversation where you begin the book and read part of the book's opening paragraph because it's a really vivid way to invite listeners into this conversation. Okay, so you write, quote, As one woman sings and plays guitar to set the mood, women enter a tent carefully decorated as the site of the sacred altar and create a sister circle. One by one, the pregnant women are blessed by their sisters through the laying on of hands, massage, and the feeding of fresh fruits. They then move to another tent where their bodies are transformed into those of mythical goddesses through adornment with paints, flowers, jewelry, and glitter before being photographed by the professional photographer on hand. Several times a year, pregnant women gather in locations throughout the world to engage in rituals such as these that affirm community, sisterhood, womanhood, and the sacredness of the rites of passage that are pregnancy and birth, end quote. So I really love how evocative that scene is that you paint for us and how it serves as a good introduction for people like me who don't know much about the spiritual birthing movement and and related organizations. So just to get us started, generally speaking, what is the spiritual birthing movement? How would you describe it for us? Thank you for that question. And this question of naming this phenomenon was actually a really difficult one in developing this book. Mm. Um, Because what I write about the sacred living movement, which the passage that you just read describes, and some of the other communities and businesses that I call spiritual birthing uh, movements and, and businesses, they're really at the intersection of different categories and don't fit clearly in any of them. Mm. Um, yeah. So on the one hand, these are groups and services. So I'm here talking about the sacred living movement, which is a, a huge part of the book. This is a movement that was started by a woman, Annie Dalter, um, with these sacred pregnancy retreats that uh, you just described. And they also offer online communities and um, different retreats and, and monthly gatherings for women all across the globe. But I'm also thinking about different small businesses in uh, American communities that provide services that sort of blend medical service with spiritual counseling and care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
These are groups and services that address biological and medical events and processes, particularly around reproductive um, healthcare and pregnancy and birth. They also involve ritual and meaning making that look a lot like religion or spirituality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They also usually charge money for their retreats and services, uh-huh. which uh-huh. is one way in which they kind of buck the traditional paradigm of um, any kind of religious or spiritual group. So, you know, all groups need some funding to survive, but they're uh-huh. pretty, you know, unabashed in, in charging for these services. So spiritual birth movements and services, it's kind of my terms for the overlap and a kind of a Venn diagram between reproductive health care and religious or spiritual movements and communities. Um, and I think that overlap is really significant um, because we don't often see ritual and spirituality and reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. We don't often see explicit fee for service in religious or spiritual mm-hmm. communities. So it's kind of unsettling the edges and boundaries of those categories and also highlighting some of the limitations of them and meeting the, the needs of pregnant and birthing people. That's good. That's a good transition uh, to my next question. So you've just described for us how these organizations that you spent time with and people blend for-profit business with services for pregnant people, those about to give birth, those also in early postpartum stages. What would you say are the things that are driving this industry and what are pregnant people looking for that they maybe aren't getting elsewhere that's uh, causing them to seek out these organizations and businesses? So I think there are limits in both reproductive health care and in religion and spirituality to the extent that they meet the needs of those who are going through these different rites of passage. Um, on the one hand, if we think about reproductive health care, um, it should be no surprise to anyone that There have been interesting evolutions in what is provided to people who are pregnant, people who give birth, um, the extent to which those people have agency over their different choices in that healthcare. And that's certainly something that is up for a very heated discussion right now across the country. And so, you know, even as some people are moving towards you know, the use of midwives, birthing in birth centers, or even at home as ways to have more control over those experiences. Our medical system is not built to sort of recognize the the psychological, the emotional uh, process that people go through in becoming pregnant, giving birth, losing a pregnancy or losing a child through um, through the process of, of childbirth. So that, that's not being addressed by medical providers generally. And then religious and spiritual communities don't typically offer that kind of support as well. I mean, there are certainly some exceptions. There are a lot of rites of passage that are recognized by mm-hmm. in institutional religion, you know, particularly around marriage, you know, different entrances into membership in the community, death. But when things like pregnancy and childbirth are addressed, it's often focused on the new child and their entrance into that religious community Mm. and not necessarily on the different processes and 
sorts of uh, evolutions of thinking and even identity that the pregnant birthing person goes through. So we have those limits, but then also all of the complicated cultural discussions about motherhood in the United States that have made it a really fraught issue generally. And so these, these groups are sort of wading into all of that and trying to meet some real needs that they see in their communities. Yeah. Part of what intrigued me in your book and that you've just hinted on here and what you were saying is you call it a, quote, systemic silence surrounding the experience of mothering, end quote. And in some ways, when I first read that, I thought, oh, but you see, you know, countless commercials and images of mothers in pop culture, you know, on and on and on. But what you're describing is different. And so I would love for you to talk a bit about what you mean when you describe systemic silence surrounding the experience of mothering and maybe, you know, what the silence does, why you think the silence exists, and then what are the groups that you've now studied trying to do about that systemic silence? Right. So I think as you point out, there's the silence that I talk about, but at the same time, motherhood is everywhere. <laughs> but if we think about the ways in which motherhood is everywhere, um, there are certainly some interesting ways in which it's being used as a political identity right now, uh, which is, I think, another area for for um, fruitful research. But also, it's it's often around what some people have called the mommy wars, <laughs> these sort of mm, you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. real or imagined kind of debates amongst women, you know whether they choose to stay home or work outside the home or breastfeed, bottle feel, feed, have this kind of childbirth experience or that kind. So different paradigms of motherhood are sort of pitted against each other. And we see many images of motherhood abound. But one of the things that I want to argue, and I certainly experienced this myself going through the process of pregnancy, birth, and and mothering, is that these conversations can make it more difficult to Mm -hmm. navigate being a mother in the United States and sort of balancing your own innate instincts and desires with societal expectations. You throw in their religious expectations and just the complications of trying to live and work in the modern world. And it can set people up for a very difficult and very isolating experience. And I know in many communities, there might be uh, community groups for brand new mothers which help you know, provide a sort of place to vent and share experiences that doesn't necessarily carry on, that doesn't necessarily exist for people who are pregnant mm-hmm. beyond something like a childbirth class, where it's very much focused on getting that baby safely out of your body, right? Mm-hmm. Or <laughs> learning how right. to feed it or yeah, sure. put a diaper on it or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, even baby showers very much focused on that baby and the supplies you need for that. And so part of what these groups do is to really focus on the experience of, for example, the pregnant person Hmm. who their body is changing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and all of these, you know, Mm -hmm. often surprising, sometimes shocking ways 
they're having complicated feelings about it all. They give birth and they have all of these hormones just sort of raging through their body and, you know, family coming to visit and trying to figure out how they might return to work and if they're doing a good job taking care of this child. So it sort of recenters the focus on pregnancy and childbirth as rites of passage that should be recognized as such and therefore are worthy of some rituals around those experiences to help usher those people through them in a positive way. And so part of what these groups do, and I think Annie Dalter and the Sacred Living Movement is a prime example of this, um, she talks about her movement as not just focusing on pregnancy and birth, but all aspects of, of human life and trying to infuse the sacred, a sense of the sacred, however you might interpret that, into those experiences. Um, so that it's not just isolated to, you know, Friday or Saturday, Sunday morning, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, community gatherings. It's something that's infused into your daily life. And so that's true for the changing shape of your body and how you recover from childbirth. It's true when we think about our relationships with each other. How can we elevate all of those experiences, infuse them with that sacredness? And she talked to me about her hope that that would sort of spread like a ripple effect into all aspects of life, both for the, the people who are participating, but also for the world around them. That's powerful. So one of the things that your book addresses is social inequity and access to services for pregnant people that are not equally distributed. And this has been a cultural conversation for a bit of time now about differences, particularly among different racial and ethnic groups when it comes to pregnant people in the United States. So I'm curious to hear from you, if you can just first tell us a bit about how services, medical services, and other services for pregnant people differ, and then how some of the groups that you've studied have worked to try to correct that. Sure. So as you said, it's it's no secret that there are incredible disparities in reproductive health care in this country. And there have been a lot of stories recently, you know, many of them sort of prompted by the experience of famous women of color who've had negative experiences, maternal mortality and negative medical experiences are frighteningly high, particularly among Black women, but also among Latinx women and, and other people of color in the United States. And in a place that's meant to have, you know, state-of-the-art healthcare, some of the best healthcare in the world, that's frankly shameful. And I think it's really worth digging into why that persists as a reality. And so on the one hand, some of these groups are trying to address some of the ways in which our healthcare system is failing certain communities. So one other group that I studied that's, um, it's just a, a couple of women who have a small business on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. in a primarily Black area. And they've developed these, these services, one focused on um, providing uh, basically a, a shower for the pregnant person rather than the baby. So mm -hmm. facilitating these um, blessing ceremonies for, for pregnant people um, and sort of facilitating some of the different rituals that bring that sense of a sacred um, to people going through that 
that process. But also there are people like Therma Sua who provides wound steaming. She provides this practice that has been, evidence of it has been found throughout the world and throughout history, really. Um, but it's a process of vaginal steaming that is thought to provide certainly repair of certain elements of, of the reproductive organs following pregnancy or some other sort of traumatic event to those, um, to those organs, but also just to help sort of rebalance and fortify and heal that part of a, mm. a woman's anatomy. And she provides spiritual counseling while women are in this process of, of steaming. And this is a clear example, and there are many others far outside of the arena of reproductive health care, of marginalized communities sort of developing additional practices to mm. supplement mm-hmm. a healthcare system that is not fully meeting the needs of their community. And so that's sort of the most direct example of that. Um, the sacred living movement is a primarily white middle and upper middle class movement. Um, if you look just at the pictures of the retreats, if you attend any of these sort of events, you will see that they are expensive to mm. participate in. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least the you know sort of location based retreats. They've been doing some work to try to expand their reach and work on the optics of those sorts of things and providing scholarships and, and things of that nature. And I think thinking sort of more theoretically about what they're doing, a lot of what I discovered is some of the real distinctions between what we might call a, a white feminism and mm-hmm. um, other sort of articulations of what feminism might look like. And there are a lot of folks who've written extensively about this, that this idea of white feminism is really focused on choice and having lots of choices, lots of options and feminism being the realization of feminism, feminist philosophy being the ability to sort of direct and have agency over your life experiences. And so when we talk about birth, we talk about working in the home or outside of the home, breastfeeding, bottle feeding, so much of that is discussed in this language of choice. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges there mm-hmm. is that not all communities have access to the same choices. You know, the choice to have to hire a, a postpartum doula, for example, to come and, and do some of these different rituals with you after the birth of your child, that costs money and takes time and requires access. And so I think this really kind of gets into just the reality that systemic racism, the legacy of the slave system, have meant that people of color are more likely to live in poverty, have less access to quality health care, often live in multi-generational one-parent households. So they might not have a choice about whether to be at home or work outside of the home. Breastfeeding might be difficult if your job provides nothing but a dirty bathroom as a place for pumping, if your food stamps cover 
formula, but not a quality breast pump. And so some of these services, because they're not part of the mainstream, they're not available equally to everyone. So there's a, an interesting kind of paradox here that I talk about where on the one hand, there's kind of a radical openness. This is open to anyone and everyone, mm. but there are certain assumptions behind that that um, require a level of access that's not available to everyone. So that's a reality in some of these movements that I think also just further emphasizes how inequitable our current systems of supporting pregnant and birthing people are, even within these movements that are trying to improve the situation. Right. No, I really appreciate that, both noting the problems within the medical system, but also then the problems that come when the solutions are you know, at for-profit places and what all that entails. So thank you for that. So I want to um, just transition a bit and, and return to some of what you've been talking about in terms of religion or spirituality. And I'm curious about the turn to spirituality because these these organizations, these businesses, they could provide support for pregnant people and not necessarily infuse them with a sense of spirituality, but the ones that you've studied have. And I'm wondering and you've talked a bit about what some of the organizers, why they've wanted to do this. I'm also curious about the people who participate in terms of what you think they're looking for that maybe they haven't found in other religious settings or elsewhere, and what motivates these organizations generally and the people who participate them to have some sense of spirituality infused with the process of being pregnant, giving birth, and parenting. A large part of this book, and I devote a whole chapter to it, has to do with broader trends in religious and spiritual life in the United States. So the Public Religion Research Institute, the Pew Research Center, uh, Ryan Burge, and a number of other scholars have been doing all sorts of surveying of the American public over the last 10 years and even longer, and have noted a dramatic shift. So you can see all kinds of stories talking about the decline of Christianity, the decline of religious uh, participation. And one of the kind of foundational studies in talking about this shift was the study uh, Nuns on the Rise by the Pew Research Center, which came out about 10 years ago. And they showed that this group of people who might check none on a survey on religious affiliation has been growing dramatically, and particularly with young adults, not Catholic nuns, N-O-N-E-S. What's interesting about these is not just the fact that they exist in such large numbers, but that they aren't, for the most part, atheists or mm, agnostics, mm-hmm. even. Yeah, 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 these yeah. are not people who are rejecting religion outright. They crave ritual, they crave community, and most of them believe in something like God. And so that to me leads to the question that is kind of at the center of a lot of my research, that if they aren't finding expression of those things in institutional religion, and there are a lot of reasons for that, having to do with politics, having to do with an American sort of sensibility of of individualism, not wanting to be put into a box. But if they're not finding it in institutional religion, where are they finding it? And what is the outlet for these beliefs and, and desires? Where is that religious or spiritual ritual and community? And this book is a partial answer to that. And I think 
religious studies as a discipline has long struggled with how we define religion, spirituality, you know, what are the boundaries of those different categories. But I think there's so much religious and spiritual activity happening in the United States that is being missed and not studied, not talked about because it doesn't fit into our paradigms of what those things are. And so, you know, that's a sort of long way of getting to an answer to say that there are a lot of people in these engaging in these practices who are those religious nuns who want something, want community, want ritual, want meaning in their lives, a sense of the sacred, and so turn to groups like this for that. But there are also religious people who do affiliate, who are participating, which I think is equally as interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think one of the ways in which that happens is that these movements don't claim to be religious. They don't have a set doctrine. They don't require any kind of membership or exclusive commitments. Not that all religions do. Many of them don't even have a regular meeting space. They also charge money for services, as we've said. So there's an element of, you know, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. But there are some very significant ways in which it does not look like a duck. Um, and it's sort of very different. You know, in talking with Annie Dalter, who started the Sacred Living Movement, she waffled a little bit in talking about how she would categorize this movement. And I think also really recognize the utility of not clearly defining it, because then people can take from it what they feel comfortable taking from it and can use it as a kind of add-on to their you know, more institutionalized religion or make it just sort of part of their larger worldview and spiritual practice. So there are examples of the sacred living movement um, doing retreats in Muslim-majority countries with folks who are very observant. And they have adapted some of their offerings to sort of fit with their customs and desires. Um, And Annie Dalton will talk about, you know, she sometimes uses tarot cards um, as part of the rituals. And if somebody's not comfortable with that, then they just leave that aside. They often talk about some sort of higher power or higher spirit and use language that leaves open the space for people to sort of fill that with whatever is meaningful to them. And so it's really interesting in that it's infused with all of this sort of religious language and rituals that you maybe kind of recognize from Uh other religious traditions, but yet it's not, there are no boundaries, there are no clear cut lines, there's no requirements of the participant to affiliate, to adopt everything, to leave something else behind. And so there's a kind of radical flexibility and openness that creates some problems for sure, but I think is super attractive to some of the people who are um, taking part. That's great. Thank you. The, yeah, the universality of it, um, I can see being quite appealing. So I do want to talk about a potential problem, but maybe it's not a problem. And I think you can um, uh, help me think through it and our, our listeners Hearing the descriptions of pregnancy as, you know, a sacred opportunity or ritual, I'm wondering if there's a double-edged sword to some of this, and if there are ways that the spiritual birthing movement promotes 
a conservative religious perspective that tells women, you know, their greatest role or purpose or source of joy is to be mothers. In other words, is it possible to say that pregnancy and birth and parenting are miraculous or sacred without concurrently reinforcing the common message that women's ultimate purpose is to be mothers? That's a very good question and one that I wrestled with quite a bit. And one of the reasons why in the book, I spend a good bit of time talking about paradigms of motherhood in Christianity as the sort of most powerful religious force in terms of kind of defining our cultural norms in the United States, but also evolutions of ideas about motherhood within American feminism. It's a very fraught topic. And I think it's interesting to think about this in context of both the discussions of of white feminism and, and some of the amazing work coming out of black feminist circles, but also thinking about second wave feminism, third wave feminism. So when we think about Simone de Beauvoir and um, Betty Friedan and some of these other kind of giants in the emergence of feminism in the 20th century, we see a kind of strong rejection of that conservative religious perspective that you talked about that sort of define women by their ability to be mothers. And they talked about things like uh, a woman's enslavement to this generative function that limits her. And part of that had to do with, you know, lack of birth control options and, and things of that nature. But motherhood was seen as kind of counter to women's liberation. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was a sort of silence um, this is where I think that that silence that, that we talked yeah, about earlier yeah. kind of emerges about motherhood and a sense that someone choosing to become a mother or to put their career or schooling or anything else on hold for that, these were anti-feminist moves that a person was making. And so what third wave feminism has done is to sort of ex- and what a feminist life and perspective can look like and in some ways kind of reclaim motherhood as a meaningful, life-affirming and legitimate choice for feminist women. Just as more modern uh, feminist voices have been unsettling all sorts of assumptions of the last generation, discussions of motherhood have been part of that too. Um, And so I think Many of these groups tend to be more liberal in terms of political affiliation. That's not something that I asked Mm -hmm. about explicitly, but some of the things that they were engaged in, I cannot imagine conservative religious women participating in. But at the same time, they absolutely glorify it. I mean, the sacred living movement's use of professional photographers is powerful. This is how I was first drawn into this movement, was seeing some of these pictures of these Mm -hmm women photographed with a soft lens, you know, and they're covered with flowers and their big bellies are painted and, you know, they're dancing around in these flowy clothes out in nature. And so it absolutely paints a particular image of motherhood that's 
a little different from most people's everyday reality. You know, as they're cooking dinner for the 3,000th time and, you know, the baby's crying again and all of that. But I think the idea is to, you know, and getting back to that choice language again, to make it an experience that is fully recognized as significant and powerful, mm -hmm. not just inevitable in the life of someone who is able to be pregnant and, and give birth, but that it's something that can transform a person and is part of their sort of life cycle mm -hmm. events. Mm -hmm. I'd also just note that I think Black feminists have long noted that that feminist discussion of sort of compartmentalizing motherhood as something, you know, counter to a feminist life has not been an option for everyone. And that these reproductive functions and even motherhood itself are so often just infused in part of a woman's identity and therefore should be fully theorized and discussed and ritualized and all of that just by necessity of the reality of life. So that reality is something that I think, you know, hopefully we as a nation can kind of move to that, that we recognize this is not just something that's inevitable and, you know, not thinking about childbirth as just another you know, medical procedure, like getting your knee replaced or something like that, but that it, it is a transformative experience. It can be traumatic. It can be life altering in all kinds of positive and negative ways. And that part of feminist discourse needs to reckon with that and recognize the power of it. And I think some of that is sort of coming to the fore in current debates and state fights over reproductive rights. So you mentioned a bit there at the end rituals, and you've talked about some of the rituals that you've observed. I'm wondering if you could share with us, um, you know, during your research, if there were any particular rituals that you found particularly intriguing or compelling as you were observing them. There were many, and I'll mention a couple examples. So one of the other people that I talk about in the book a little bit is Amy Wright Glenn, who has created all kinds of trainings for people who might work with individuals in their communities as doulas or mm -hmm. as chaplains around different kind of life events. And one of her focuses has been on pregnancy and infant loss. And so I, I participated in a, a training that she ran on um, how to support people going through that. And that's another really striking example of a life event that many religious communities and certainly medical communities do not provide enough support within. Mm, so yeah. most religious communities don't have specific rituals or supports for a childbirth that ends in stillbirth or a pregnancy that ends due to miscarriage or some other event. And Unsurprisingly, people going through that are experiencing incredibly complex and heavy emotions of, of craving, sometimes guilt, all kinds of thoughts around their own ability to um, conceive and bring a pregnancy to term. And so she talks about and teaches about some different rituals that have been helpful to individuals around providing something like a memorial service or burial, if that is something meaningful for, um, for that couple. 
um, doing different rituals around pregnancy loss that help to sort of recognize all of those complex emotions to really mourn that loss and be able to, with time, move on. And so that that was something that I had not personally reckoned with a lot um, in terms of how little of that is available to people I, I know and love who have, have experienced that. So that's one example. I also participated in the Sacred Living Movement's postpartum training. Hmm. But what we learned in that training was all kinds of different rituals to provide to a postpartum person. So someone who's just given birth and the assumption being that it was a successful um, pregnancy and birth with a healthy child. And the rituals there, you know, as someone who has two children and went through all of those different processes, just about everything we went through, I just thought about how incredibly powerful and helpful those things would have Hmm. been. And it was such an interesting blend of very kind of physical focused things, some spiritual focused things, some psychological. So we learned how to make all of these different recipes of teas and stews and things that were specifically designed to fortify a postpartum body Uh and to provide some healing and rebalancing of of all of the things that get thrown out of whack um, through that process. But also some very simple things like creating a beautiful and decorating a beautiful journal and then sitting with that person and asking them to tell you the birth story. And then you sit there and you write it down for them. Hmm. And that process of telling that story, the good, the bad, the ugly of it, and having it preserved is something that I think many people would love to have. But it's also incredibly hard to do on your own in the midst of, you know, caring for a brand new infant and your, you know, all the things going on with your body and, and all of the rest. Um, and even things like, you know, creating this herbal blend for a sort of ritual bath that you can create for this woman and her home. You know, you set everything up with the candles and the, you know, certain herbal things in the bath to help with her um, physical recovery. And you usher her in there, give her your special tea that you made, you know, and and let her take that time. And, you know, a hospital will give you the pads and the various things that you need to sort of take care of your body afterwards. But it's all very clinical and it's all not very pleasant. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And so, mm -hmm. you know, making that process of, of caring for your physical body when for the first time you're also caring for this body ex- external to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so focused on that, is the baby eating enough? You know, are they going to the bathroom enough? Are they sleeping? This refocuses and just recognizes and elevates that that person has gone through something really significant and that they need to heal and they need to process and they need to be honored. Mm-hmm. for having gone through that and for that transition into motherhood. And that was just incredibly powerful to see. And it was just so crystal clear to me how uh, how valuable that would be for so many women, not all, certainly, but in, in thinking back to how clinical things are and how rough things are in those first postpartum days, 
that really became real to me, sort of the, the hole that, that these groups are trying to fill. That's very helpful. Thank you. Well, then for our last question, as someone who has been thinking about pregnancy, pregnant people, parenting for several years and has been studying it, what might you say is your ultimate verdict or one of your uh, takeaway thoughts about what you think the country and communities should be doing to better support pregnant people and those who care for children? So that's a great and really important question to end on. And I think I'll start sort of on the very practical level. Um, even though these groups are not at all engaging in political activism or trying to change policy or anything like that, I think the most fundamental way in which we can better support pregnant people and parents is, you know, something that comes down to policy and laws. And um, so thinking about expanding and protecting reproductive health care options to give pregnant and birthing people as many legal options as possible to manage their health and family planning. I think certainly access to parental leave, breastfeeding support for those who choose to breastfeed, flexible work policies that just sort of recognize that birthing, parenting are parts of the human experience. They mm -hmm. aren't things that just detract from a, someone's ability to work. Sort of moving, moving beyond that kind of capitalist perspective and recognize that people are, are whole people <laughs> that have all of these different parts to their lives and that people will be happier, will do better at their jobs when all of those aspects of their life are supported. I mean, I think also just attention to economic and racial injustice will de facto improve the quality of life for American families and, and through that pregnant and birthing people. And I think lastly, I'd just say there's there's room, I think, for religious communities to do some work here. Um, I think religious communities are very well aware of the demographic shifts that I was talking about and seeing they're seeing the declining numbers, particularly among young people. And, you know, there's been a lot of attention to programming for young people, um, attention to social justice issues as ways of responding. But I think they can also think about the ways in which they are supporting their parishioners, their members as full people and think about all of those different life cycle events that people go through, including pregnancy and birth, and how they can support their communities in that. Um, yeah. Not just marriage, not just death, not just yeah. the yeah. birth of a child in terms of bringing that child into the community, but thinking about the effect of that birth or the loss of a pregnancy, for example. So uh, some of the community building and some of the ritual that these groups are doing could very well be done within a religious community, which might be a way of attracting mm -hmm. and keeping mm -hmm. more members along the way. Yes, that's great. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this fascinating conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Ann Duncan. You can find an excerpt from her book, Sacred Pregnancy, Birth, Motherhood, and the Quest for Spiritual Community in the Revealer's upcoming September issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of Sacred Pregnancy at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be continuing a theme from this episode but moving into the realm of politics with an episode on religion and reproductive rights. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy.
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org. Thank you.